Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. It's good to be back up here again. It's amazing how odd this feels since I do this every week, but just take a couple weeks off and it feels weird to be back up here again. I want to begin by just saying thank you for allowing my family and I to take a vacation uh, just a couple weeks ago to go out uh, west for an amazing vacation. Um, I I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, David and Jacob uh, serving us well uh, while I was gone to allow me to be able to do that. And I also want to say thank you to you guys. I've not had a chance to do this publicly, uh, but uh, back in April, you guys were very kind and very generous to, to me and my family and uh, giving us gifts for a 10-year anniversary here, our 10-year uh, celebration for uh, our time here, uh, significant uh, financial gift, and we really did appreciate that. I know many of you guys um, were very generous in giving to that, and I just want to say thank you publicly from me, from my family, uh, from Emily and, and the kids. Um, just allowed us to be able to do some things while we were out there that maybe we typically uh, wouldn't have been able to do, and so we just really appreciate that, and I wanted to publicly say thank you very much for your generosity and for your kindness to us. Uh, I love being a pastor here. I love that God has called us here, and I can't wait to see what the next 10 years brings. And we'll talk a lot about that here in, uh, uh, I guess, a couple of months whenever we, we get closer to our celebration. Uh, but anyways, I, I want to take you back to the year 1987. 1987. I am seven years old, and my life is about to change because I'm about to watch the first movie that I ever really remember. I mean, maybe there's one or two others that I remember snippets from, but the first one that I remember really all of it, and I'm pretty sure the first one that I watched on repeat nonstop for the time that we had it. I can't remember if we rented the movie and we had it for like three days and I just watched it nonstop or what. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I remember that this is one of the first movies that I laughed in, uh, that I was emotionally engaged, uh, that even scared me a little bit. I still to this day think it's a cinematic uh, masterpiece. Uh, it was Ernest Goes to Camp. I don't know if we have any Ernest fans in here or not. I may have just missed the demographic just a little bit for some of you guys. Uh, but uh, I, I can't explain to you how funny I thought this, this movie was. We're going to see a clip here in just a second. Uh, I probably haven't seen this movie since I was 9 or 10 years old. But from the age of uh, 7 to 10, I saw it, I'm sure, dozens of times. I thought it was great. It had an opening scene, if you remember this movie, that had me hooked. And I'm certain that there's a level of cultural appropriation in this movie that's totally not, would not fly today, probably should not fly today. Uh, but in 1987, it was a fair game. And in the opening scene, there's this tribe of Native Americans that are, uh, that are taking part in this intense initiation ritual for a young brave that is supposed to go out and join the other warriors. Uh, and it was intense for me as a seven-year-old. To open a movie like this had me hooked right off the bat. And what I want to show you is the clip where they explain the significance of this ritual. So go ahead, guys, show that clip. When a young brave is ready to become a warrior, it was here that he was called by the wise men and the elders. If he had faith in the Great One, the knife would not cut him. If he had courage, true courage, the rock would not break him. If the brave was pure of heart, the arrow could not catch him. 
And then he would become a warrior, as someday you will. And that was called the ceremony of the blade, the stone, and the arrow. Like in our culture, paper, rock, scissors. That is Ernest Goes to Camp in a Nutshell. As I said, that is high cinematic uh, quality. That is, uh, that is really good stuff. Anyways, the film is built around the unlikely and terrifying prospect of undergoing this ritual, of having to go through this ritual. And I won't spoil anything. If you guys are looking for a good family movie tonight, you could probably find this one somewhere. Uh, but I remember as a kid thinking, how did anyone ever go through that ritual? How did anyone make it through that thing? That terrified me. That was so scary that somebody would throw a hatchet at your head, and if you lived, it meant you were brave. If you died, it meant you, you weren't. It didn't make any sense to me why that was the case, but it scared me nonetheless. And I remember thinking, my seven-year-old brain wouldn't have formed these thoughts and these words and put it all together, but I do remember thinking that I'm so glad my culture doesn't have these weird initiation rites that we have to go through, because I don't think I could handle something like that. Again, I wouldn't have articulated it that way, but I assure you that was my seven-year-old feelings at the time. This morning, though, I'm going to talk about something that I did find out when I got a little bit older. I don't remember ever thinking about baptism as a kid. I don't remember that being a thing that I kind of uh, went through. We weren't in church a lot when I was a uh, young kid, but enough that I probably heard about it at some point. Uh, It just never really clicked with me that it was a thing, that baptism was something that you uh, did uh, until I became a a Christian uh, at the age of 13, and then I realized oh, I've got to do this thing that I've seen before, baptism. And I have to go through my own initiation rite. After all, isn't that what baptism is about anyway? It's an initiation rite, isn't it? I read this week, I was reading a, a, a book. It's by a, a secular author that, that is, is talking about uh, the, the, the strange rites of, a, of the new culture. Uh, and how effectively the new culture is still religious, even though they want to pretend that they're not. And, uh, and, and one of the things she mentions in there, she talks about Christians having the strange initiation rite of baptism. Now, when we talk about baptism, a lot of you are going to have different kind of things in your head whenever we talk about that, depending on what your church background is. If you come from a Catholic background, when we talk about baptism, you're thinking of one thing. If you come from a, uh, a Presbyterian or more Orthodox background, that's going to be uh, a different type of thing. If you come from a Baptist background, you're thinking about something entirely different. So we've got to sort through some of those issues this morning. Now, this is not going to be a theological like uh, a seminar where we're going to cover all the different arguments for all these different things. I just want to put forward for you what, how we see baptism working here at providence and why things like infant baptism which by the way infant baptism for catholics and infant baptism for presbyterians are wildly different things looks very similar but wildly different in the meaning that is ascribed to those things but i'll explain to you why a couple weeks ago whenever we did uh, baby dedication we did not baptize those babies 
Uh, why didn't we do that? Some of you here were probably baptized as babies. Um, and I don't want to say that what, whatever happened to you as a baby was, was, uh, was no good, was worthless, was useless, none of that kind of stuff. I don't want to say any of that. But I do want to put forward what I think the scriptures teach about baptism. And so we're going to look at a few different texts. We're going to be in 1 Peter. We're going to be in Colossians. We're going to be in Ephesians. Kind of bouncing around the New Testament. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, covering a lot of different things. But even whenever we talk about baptism, and you guys kind of form your own picture in your head of what we are talking about, um, then I, for, for almost all of us in here, I think that we forget, again, as I've said uh, a few weeks ago, I think we forget how, as this one author said, strange it is that we do this. It is not normal that we do this. I have a membership to Costco and, and a membership to Sam's Club. I did not have to go and dunk myself in a, in a dunk tank whenever I joined those places in order to be able to shop there. Even though joining Costco, I think, based off of conversations, is like joining a cult. I didn't have to do any of those type of things, right? I didn't have to do that. So why would we do something like that? Why would we have this thing where we say, you need to get baptized, does baptism somehow, like, uh, like Ernest Friend here, does it somehow uh, prove something about who we are and about how we deserve and belong somewhere, how we deserve to be a part of something? Or is it something completely different? And so for the next 30 minutes, we're going to cover all of these things in our series Rooted, and our goal in this series is to kind of anchor us in the Scriptures and in truth. To take the things that we do here at Providence and ask the question, why do we do these things? Because just because we see them regularly doesn't mean that they are normal. And just because we see them regularly doesn't mean that we know the depth of the theology and doctrine behind them. Just like the tree, you remember we talked about the tree, you can see the canopy. You can't always see the root structure below it that is as big or bigger than the tree. And what I want to do is to be able to kind of deepen your root structure so that you are nourished by the theology and the doctrine of Scripture. And I'm convinced the more we lean into our understanding of things like baptism, the more we will appreciate and hold on to our faith, especially when the winds blow and times are hard. So I want to begin by reading Matthew chapter 3, and I want to, I want to talk about our first example given to us for baptism. But even this is a little bit different than what we do today, but I just want to read this. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is John the Baptist talking to the crowd that had gathered around him about baptism. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he will not burn, with un but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to, to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus comes to John, 
who is out baptizing. And his baptism is built around repentance. Now, it doesn't have all the rich meaning and symbolism that we're going to talk about this morning with baptism yet, because Jesus has not died. He has not resurrected yet. Um, it, it, it's simply a baptism for repentance. It is a, uh, a coming forward to say, I'm not going to do the things I want to do. It's kind of a spiritual marker for those that would come. So he's out preaching this message, telling the people to repent, telling the people that whenever Jesus comes, he's going to separate those that are, uh, that are righteous, those that are not righteous, and, it, and he, he will come with fire. And it's, it's very graphic, very detailed language about how Jesus is going to winnow out those that are unrighteous. And as he's telling the people this, Jesus walks up and he says, it's my turn. It's my turn that I would be baptized. And John is utterly confused, as you would be too, as I would be. Why in the world, Jesus, would you need to be baptized? You have nothing to repent of. You have nothing to turn away from. You have no sin to confess. It's like going to court whenever you've not been summoned to court. It's like going to court when you've not been summoned and saying, I'm guilty. Put me in jail. It would make no sense. You have no reason to be there. You have no charge to plead guilty to. But this is exactly what Jesus does. And John doesn't have categories for this. And then Jesus then kind of gives him this cryptic response by saying that it's right that he do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, there's all kinds of stuff that's built into that phrase, all kinds of meaning that's uh, been ascribed to that phrase. Some I think that is probably accurate in what Jesus was trying to communicate, some that's probably a bit of a stretch. There's a lot there. It's a loaded phrase. But there's at least part of it that we need to make sure that we get out of this that I think is very clear in what Jesus is trying to do in this moment. In saying fulfill all righteousness, Jesus validates John's ministry. He validates what he's doing out there in the desert. He validates all the things that he is saying about repentance. He validates his message about preparing the way for the one that would come, who is Jesus. Jesus also publicly announces his own, his own public uh, portion of his ministry, saying, I'm now kind of coming out here to tell you I'm here to begin my ministry for everyone. And so these two things are important to the understanding of what Jesus is doing. But the primary thing that Jesus is doing here as he launches his ministry is that he is coming to identify with the sinful people that he has come to save. He is saying, yes, I... I, I don't belong here. John, you are right. I do not have anything to repent of. But the people that I have come to save, the people that I have come uh, to, 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 to be with, the, co- the people that I have come to, 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 to represent, they do, and I come to identify with them. It's the first picture that we see that Jesus, as he comes here to earth, will not just come and reign in this kind of holy, righteous way. Instead, he will come and he will identify with the lowliest of the lowly. He will hang out with the, uh, with, with the prostitutes and the drunkards. And he will become like us and identify with us. And as we see on the cross, and we'll eventually talk about more this morning, he will identify with us in our sin to the point that he takes on our sin completely. This is kind of foreshadowing for what is to come. Jesus is saying, I need to be baptized because I have become, I am becoming one of you. 
So he's baptized in solidarity with the people he came to save. And in doing so, he sets us an example. You say, all right, why is this so important? It's important because what will follow after this is that when Jesus comes up out of the water, as we read here just a second ago, Jesus comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven comes out, and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we desperately need both pieces of what happens here. We need Jesus' identification with us as sinners, and we need God's response to him, the Father's response to him, that says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Because when Jesus identifies with us in our sin and our need for repentance, it will enable us to identify with him in his acceptance before the Father. Do you see how that works? So when he comes and he identifies with us in our need for repentance, we can then identify with him in his acceptance before the Father. So whenever Jesus says, I need to repent, As these people do, we can say, I'm accepted before the Father as he is. Now, that only happens through faith. There's a lot more to it. We'll talk about it as we keep going. But that's where we're going. We need Jesus to identify with us so that we can identify with him. Because Jesus says, I am like you, we can say, we are like him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our identity is fundamentally changed because he takes on our sin. This, <clears throat> this is the promise of baptism. This is the promise that we have in baptism. And what's great is then as Jesus goes on to complete this ministry that he launches here, we get the fuller picture of what baptism is all about. In order for us to understand baptism at all, we have to understand what, is, what God is doing, what Jesus is doing in this moment. It's popular to teach that, that baptism is just a public statement about something that has happened in your heart. That's a pretty common way to teach baptism. And that's true enough as it, as it stands. Uh, I used to teach, uh, w- when I would teach like uh, middle school students, uh, I-, I, would use this, I-, I would use this analogy. I would say baptism is kind of like whenever a, 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 a football player, a basketball player, baseball player signs with a new team. When they sign with a new team, usually what follows, especially if it's kind of a big name, uh, if it's kind of a big name player, will be a press conference. And at that press conference, they'll hold up a uniform that will have the player's name on it. And what's being said at that press conference is, this guy was on another team, but now he's on our team. Here's the uniform that proves it. And what I've said is, that's what baptism is. It is our press conference to say, I'm switching allegiance. I'm switching the team that I play for. I'm now on Jesus' team. That's true enough as far as it goes, but that is woefully short of what is actually happening in baptism. It's a small, small part of it. Too often, though, we take that to be the sum total of what is happening in baptism. 
That is a small part of it. Announcing publicly, this is who our allegiance is to. But there's a lot more to it. I'm going to read one of the more confusing passages in the New Testament from 1 Peter. I'm going to read this passage, and I don't want you to get too lost in some of the language. Uh, God's grace, we're going to be in this book in the fall, and so I'll come back and kind of parse through some of this stuff. But I just want to focus on, focus on a couple of things that Peter brings out that are clear out of this passage, okay? <clears throat> so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So if you stop right there, you're probably like, what in the world are you talking about, Peter? Spirits in prison and all this other stuff. It's, it, there's a lot that you've got to unpack in this passage here. But he starts talking about Noah. He's talking about the ark. He's talking about the flood. What you do not expect at this point is for them, Peter, to make a connection from what he has just said about the ark and the flood to baptism. That's exactly what he does. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, all that I just read about the ark and the flood, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now again, there's a lot here. Peter's making some pretty sweeping statements some of which are really hard for us to understand. But when we talk about baptism and when he addresses baptism, it's pretty clear the, the, the parallel that he is making. He is comparing baptism to a flood. He's carrying not just any flood, but the flood that Noah made it through. He's comparing baptism to a flood. Now let me ask you, when you think of baptism in the church, so whenever I started talking about baptism earlier and I said, I said, there's different things that come to your mind whenever you're talking about baptism. I'm going to guess some of you had in mind, like, us baptizing, baptizing at the pool. Some of you guys had in mind a, a, a pretty mural painted behind back here where you're uh, dunked in the water back, uh, back behind the, the, the choir loft. Some of you guys had a picture of a river or a lake. Some of you had a picture of a baby that is getting sprinkled. How many of you guys had the picture of a flood in your head whenever I talked about baptism? I'm going to bet none of you. I'm going to bet none of you had the picture of a worldwide flood. But that's what came into Peter's mind when he's talking about baptism. Why is that? Why is Peter's vision of baptism so dark, but ours is so joyous and happy, and it's a moment to celebrate and to clap and to cheer? Why is it that Peter's vision of baptism is so dark? Peter is zeroing in on the desperate need of baptism in our lives. The joy of baptism is in the depth of the darkness that it teaches about our situation. So you've got to understand that. The reason that baptism is joyous is not because we got a new player on the team. It's not because we got a new like superstar free agent to come join the church. The joy in baptism is because of the darkness that it points to. So let's not minimize what happens in baptism, but let's 
Let's explore it and let's bring it out to understand it better. Peter describes the flood, Noah's ark, and the few that were saved through that judgment. He then says that baptism is like the ark in the flood. It is a lifeboat in the midst of total destruction and desolation. That is the picture of what baptism is to be for us. At times, baptism can be so trivial in the church today. The way we talk about baptism is so flippant. Spontaneous baptisms are a frequent and common thing for a lot of churches. And there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Some of the churches can do it well, but oftentimes all that's required for a spontaneous baptism is that you walk down an aisle, you grab a t-shirt, you sign the waiver for their Instagram feed, and then you get in the water. And you get your picture made, and that's all that's required for you to get baptized. But there's so much that is happening in those moments. So for us, whenever we do baptisms, we want to make sure that we're walking through some of what is happening in that moment. I wonder if any of us see baptism as a lifeboat in the midst of chaos and destruction like Peter did. I know I didn't see that when I got baptized, but I do now. You see, Peter sees baptism in this way because he understands what is coming for us apart from Christ. He understands what is coming for us. He understands the coming judgment that is waiting for us. He knows that apart from some saving instrument, apart from something for us to hide ourselves in, We are like the people left off the ark, marked for destruction. Peter says in verse 21 that the saving work of this ark of baptism is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So don't get confused whenever it says that baptism now saves us. It's not saying that that is the the instrument that saves us in the same way that it's the thing that delivers us. It's saying that the ark, that the the, the salvation that is within baptism gets its power from the resurrection. So don't get lost in that saying, okay, well, you have to get baptized in order to be saved. That's not what Peter is trying to communicate. He says, we're not talking about removal of water from the body. We're talking about something that is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. So baptism is tied to the resurrection of Christ. Those two things are inseparable. It's not saying that baptism actually saves you, but what it represents for us is an ark of salvation, much like what Noah was on. So we need to know what it represents. And I want to read two verses that shed light of what it means whenever we talk about it as an ark. And I'll come back and we'll, we'll, we'll explain this some more. So, so two, different, two different passages here. First is Romans chapter 6, 3 and 4. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what you will find here is that throughout the New Testament is that when New Testament writers talk about baptism, they primarily talk about 
death. They primarily talk about death. Baptism is a proclamation about who we are. Not that we are dirty and need removal of dirt. Not that we just need to be washed, but that we are dead men walking. When we choose to be baptized, when we choose to be baptized, we are saying we are dead. Just as a side note, the only way that this works is if we're talking about baptism by immersion. That's the only way the symbolism works here. The word baptized literally means to dunk under, to dip under. So there's no, you can't get away from the, the, the overall imagery all over the New Testament if you remove being dunked in the water and then being brought up. So that's the imagery that we're talking about here. It's the only way the Bible talks about baptism. That's it. It's the only way. So when we are dunked under the water, we are making several, several statements at once. First, we're making the statement, statement that we are dead men. Ephesians 2.5, we are dead in our trespasses. The Bible is crystal clear about this. Not only are we acknowledging that we are dead in our sin, we are acknowledging that we deserve death, just like all of those in the flood. That the condemnation that is due us is right, just, and exactly what we should have. That is our confession when we go down into the water. That we are dead men and we deserve that punishment. Apart from that, you do not have Christianity. You are confessing we deserve that. That's what Peter is getting at. We are confessing that our sin has put us in a place where we too deserve the wrath of God, just like those in the flood. And when we are baptized... We say that we are dead men deserving condemnation. And the church says, we agree, you are. That is what is happening in those first moments of baptism when you go under the water. Dead men who deserve condemnation. And the church says, that's right, you do. So baptism is a judgment. It is a pronouncement. It is a confession of our unworthiness Uh, before God and of his righteousness. It is a statement effectively saying we don't belong here. So you don't undergo baptism to somehow prove your worth that you belong to the church crowd, that you somehow belong in heaven, you belong with God. This is not some initiation rite like, uh, like Ernest and his friends here or like cultures all over the world that you have to pass through the fire to prove your worth. That is not what we are doing. We are confessing our full unworthiness, that we do not belong, that our admission to heaven should not happen, that we fully deserve wrath. Your confession is that you do not belong there. This is not your way into any kind of club, but it's in fact your confession to keep you out of it. But baptism doesn't end in a burial, just as Jesus' death did not end in a tomb. 
Romans 6, 5, 6, 5, again, going back to that. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. That's the hope of the gospel. That is why we gather. This is why we teach the Bible. This is, this is the heart of the message of of Christianity and of Providence Church, that if we are united in his death, if we confess we deserve that, we will not be left in the water, but we will be brought up from the water and united in his resurrection. The glorious truth is that if we are buried with him in baptism, as Colossians 2.12 says, we are raised to, to life, to newness of life through faith. That's what it says in Colossians 2.12 through faith. This, this exact picture right here is why we don't do infant baptism here. This is why infant baptism doesn't work. Because the resurrection that we receive is not simply a marker of a new covenant. It is that. That's what, a Presbyter- what Presbyterians would teach, that it is a marker of a new covenant, that circumcision was the marker of the covenant in the Old Testament, that baptism is the marker of the covenant in the New Testament. And that is true, but it is insufficient in its picture of baptism. Because it's not just a marker of a new covenant, it is also the symbol of a dead man come to life. Baptism represents what happens in faith. When we are united with Christ. This is why we only do what's called believer's baptism. Those who are united by faith with Christ. And I just want to say too, like, we, we partner with a lot of Presbyterian churches, Presbyterian organizations. RUF meets here every Monday night during the school year. They baptize infants and they do it as a, as, when they do it, they do it as a sign that they want that child to be a part of the covenant. I think what they do whenever they do infant baptism is beautiful. I think it is wonderful what they do and the meaning that they ascribe to it. I just don't think that's the meaning the Bible ascribes to it. I think what they are going for, the message they're trying to communicate is beautiful. I just don't think that's the message the Bible communicates. And there's a lot more to this. There's, a, there's some long, in-depth arguments, books and and, and uh, dissertations that have been written between these two things. So there's a lot we could talk about if you've got questions about it. And I know some of you guys uh, do have some questions, and we can talk through some more. But that, in a nutshell, is the difference. That, in a nutshell, is the difference. A Presbyterian understanding of infant baptism, which, again, is totally different than a Catholic understanding. A Catholic understanding completely misses the gospel. It is about how the water takes away the sin. Not Jesus, but the water. Completely wrong. But a Presbyterian Orthodox understanding, it's a beautiful sentiment. It's just not a scriptural one. And it misses the much more direct point of Scripture. That baptism is about death and resurrection. You don't get that with a sprinkling. You get that with new life through faith. And that's what's represented in baptism. So we don't baptize babies because babies don't have faith in Christ. They can't confess their need for Christ. And so they are not in faith with him and they have not been raised. 
And so it is with anyone here who's apart from Christ. You are like the person being baptized. I want you to understand this. If you are here and you do not know Jesus, if you have not united your life with his in faith, if you have not trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, you are like the person buried in the water. The problem is you have no way up out of the water. You are marked for condemnation because of the deeds you have done. Apart from Christ, you will not come up from that. You will not be spared from that. You must come to Christ. You are like the person held under the water with no hope for life. But with Christ, united with him through faith, we are then brought up out of the water to celebrate the resurrection. The resurrection. For in this morning, apart from Christ, you will not be pulled from the water. Do not walk out of here this morning with that condemnation still marking you. You must repent as John taught. You must be born again. You must put your faith in Christ. And when you do, the drama of baptism is then complete. You will be raised with him. Friends, baptism is not an initiation right for us as Christians. It is not. It feels like one because it it marks the beginning of our life with Christ. But it is not an initiation rite for us as Christians. It doesn't get you in the club. It doesn't show you're worthy. It doesn't show that you you belong. None of those things happen. It is a full-on declaration that you deserve nothing other than death and condemnation. But by the grace of God, You are pulled from the flood. You are raised to walk in newness of life. Not initiated into a club, but united with a Savior. Does baptism save you? Not at all. The thief on the cross, he was not baptized, but Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Baptism does not save you, but it is clear that it is how discipleship begins. And it begins because it shows so clearly what has happened in your life. It teaches you and it teaches everyone who is watching that Jesus saves. That we were dead. That Jesus was dead. That Jesus was buried and that he came back again. That we too were dead. That we too were buried. And the only hope of a resurrection is that he would unite us in his resurrection. That Jesus identified with us in our sin on that cross. That he was buried in that tomb shows that he has come and he has identified with us and he has stood in our place. As the song says, in my place condemned he stood. He is fully identified with us. But because he has done that, we can now be fully identified with him in his resurrection. And the pronouncement over you, the same one who was buried and dead, marked for condemnation, the pronouncement over you now, when you are united with faith in Christ, is this. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. 
that happens only through grace. This is why we call it the gospel, which means the good news. The good news. We are no longer under condemnation in Christ Jesus. But the Father is well pleased with us, co-heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters. Not because we have earned it by passing through the rite or the ritual, but because we have been united with Christ. Our faith is rooted in the truth of baptism. Death, burial, and resurrection. This morning, I'm going to pray here in just a second. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing. I'll be available to pray with anybody. If you are here this morning and you know that you are still under that condemnation, you are still under the water. I'm not saying if you've never been baptized. What I'm saying is if you've never united yourself with faith in Christ, do not leave here this morning in that same place. I invite you to come. Let's, let's talk. Let's pray. And let's consider what it would mean for you to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ and that you would be brought up out of that water. For others of you in here this morning, you've never been baptized. You're united with Christ. You know that your heart is united with his, that your life is united with his, that you have fully trusted in him to be the one to bring you from that water. You are not trying to save yourself in any way. But you've never been baptized. We've got two opportunities coming up, one at the, at the beginning of August, one at the end of August. We'd love for you guys to be a part of that, to be able to celebrate the drama of the gospel, dead, buried, but brought back to life. Come talk to me. Send me an email this week. Give me a phone call. Stop by the office this week. would love to talk to you about what it would look like to baptize you and to be a part of 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 showing the drama of Scripture and of the Gospel. As I pray here, I just pray that you would not walk out of this place. Some of you guys know God is dealing with you right now. Some of you parents, you've been having these conversations with your kids. Some of you parents have not been having these conversations with your kids, and you need to be. Talk about it. Let's walk through it. Let's talk about it together. And let's celebrate the grace of God in the life of the people of Providence Church. Let's celebrate once again through baptism here in just a few weeks. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for the picture of baptism. We thank you for how clearly it shows us our desperate need. That we are sinners. Marked for condemnation. Marked the same way that the people outside of the ark were marked. Father, I thank you for the ark that Noah had, and I thank you for the, 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 the ark, the salvation that you have given us in Christ, in his resurrection. Father, I pray for those in here that do not know that salvation this morning, that know they are still the ones marked for condemnation, still the ones marked by their sin, no hope of coming up out of that water. Father, I pray that this morning that would change, that the Spirit would work in their lives, that the wind of the Spirit would blow, and their lives would be forever changed this morning. Father, for those that have not taken that first step in discipleship of baptism, I pray that, that this morning 
you would begin working in their lives. To be able to celebrate that testimony of a person who was once dead is now alive through the grace of Christ.